Meet the Mechonics is now sponsored by Audible.com. As part of this sponsorship, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a 30-day trial so you can check out the range of titles that they're offering. Currently, Audible has over 180,000 books to choose from for either your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. To help support this podcast, please go to www.audibletrial.com slash And now, on with our next episode. Great. So, hello everyone. Uh, for those of you who are tuning in now offline, uh, this is not a live uh, Ustream uh, as we usually do with these episodes. Uh, instead, we had to pre-record this one uh, because while our next guest is based in Europe, he is currently in China. So, we have had to negotiate the Great Firewall um, to make sure we get a clean connection uh, for this episode. Uh, so, welcome again, and I'm glad to have Jacob Biamonte here, who is from the University of Malta, where he's recently taken up a faculty position. So, Jacob, thanks for joining us. Um, hello, Simon. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, just to, as my usual format goes, just to give us a bit of a brief rundown of you and, and how you got into this field and, and quantum computing and quantum information in general, because you've had quite an interesting uh, career. You've worked both in the private sector, notably for D-Wave Systems, the quantum computing company, and for government research institutes and now back in academia, back at the university. Um, so if you just give sort of, you know, the, the five-minute CV and, and how you came to be uh, quite involved with this and quite interested in researching uh, sort of quantum information and, and quantum theory. Well, I, you know, I ended up getting a scholarship when I was in an an undergrad, and then my departmental advisor, which is just randomly selected, suggested I did something on quantum computing, and I sort of pursued it since then. I spent a bit of time up at D-Wave, and at that point, I was looking at kind of the intersection of universal models of adiabatic quantum computing, what could really actually be built in hardware, and then some complexity uh, theoretic proofs, and kind of trying to merge those all together to sort of lead us to, you know, lead us to a model that we could actually build and it would have a, a ground state that was, you know, uh, universal for quantum computing. And I've worked at a variety of different places. I did a PhD in Oxford. I spent some time in Boston at Harvard. I've spent some time in Singapore. Um, pretty friendly. I have kind of an international uh, group of different collaborators that I work with regularly. And so um, I talk on Skype once in a while to them, obviously. And uh, so this is kind of like that, except uh, maybe, you know, maybe we'll get a paper out of this discussion. That'd be nice. Well, yes, obviously, every, every time we have a bit of a chat, there's always different directions in which we can move on. So, I mean, would you consider yourself more uh, on the application side? So, say, for example, with my stuff, I'm very much in the idea of system design and incorporating in actual physical systems to error-corrected hardware models. Are you more on that side or are you more on the sort of more foundational side? You know, how does quantum information and quantum mechanics uh, play a role in information processing and sort of these more fundamental issues in quantum theory and, and uh, quantum computing? Well, the beauty of this topic is perhaps that there isn't a strict dichotomy. And so I like to think of myself as someone who is exploring the idea that a physical system implicitly represents information in its state. And the physical systems that are of the most interest to us are those where the emergent complexity, the complexity that maybe we cannot prove that it is exponentially complex, but what we see and what we suspect 
is that as the constituents in the system grow and that increases, the complexity that we see or that we have to experience is an exponential as that system size grows. And so I would say that in that broad topic, that quantum information theory and quantum computation is one you know, huge facet of that. And the connection to the real world is what really drove this. And so I don't want to, you know, compartmentalize myself as saying that, you know, I'm just, a, you know, just working on this or just working on that. I'm really now looking at, um, you know, this idea in a variety of settings. And the most important one for me and the one that I spend the most time on is, in fact, you know, quantum mechanics, quantum physics, quantum information. Um, but I've also done some work on looking at those ideas in stochastic complex systems mm -hmm. and, you know, comparing those with, uh, with what we're seeing in, you know, quantum versions of those systems and, and things like that. So. so I see a bit of a, a sort of a theme when it comes to um, your papers. I wouldn't say it's a, it's a dominant theme, but it's certainly there in terms of these ideas of quantum complex networks, tensor networks, uh, stuff like that, quantum walks uh, in regards to information processing. We've had some various guests over this podcast over the last year, um, people who are very focused on gate-based models, people who are focused on um, these adiabatic techniques, uh, people focused on boson sampling and, uh, and other sort of quantum protocols. Um, how do these ideas of quantum networks, first of all, what are they? And are they just, you know, when some people hear of quantum networks, they think of sort of quantum versions of the internet, but that's not quite what you're talking about in this case. You're talking about information processing mm -hmm. networks. So could you maybe give us a bit of a run through, just briefly, sort of layperson level, um, what these things are and how they sort of fit into sort of the, the more global picture and quantum computing and, and quantum communications? Well, it's actually a very good question. So I'm often asked uh, to review papers on, you know, basically quantum internets in a wide range of journals just because I have the word network. But network theory is a tool and tensor networks are a tool and these tools are you know, they're just used and I'm using those tools because they bring with them um, a nice collection of, you know, reasonably sophisticated things. They're grounded in pretty solid mathematics and the analysis that you can get out of those tools is, you know, kind of at the forefront, in my opinion, of what we're doing in several areas in quantum physics. And so, um, you know, a quantum circuit, for example, um, is a type of tensor network, okay, where tensor networks can be studied because um, one thing is because you can represent different classes of one-body states efficiently using matrix product states, but on the other hand, you can actually reason graphically, okay, much like rules of quantum circuits, or if you have, if you work on an anionic quantum computer, you're looking at braids, okay, those are types of tensor networks, and those are, those are just tools, and graph theory is a tool, um, just like anything else, and so the word network theory, um, when systems interact, people draw networks. And so almost anything can, you know, essentially be network theory. And a lot of people call the quantum internet a network. And I've, you know, I have never, I never will work on the quantum internet, I suspect, although uh, it would be great if we had one. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, some of the stuff I might talk about with you later offline about uh, some possible ideas that might try and link the two. Um, but, so, so just to, I mean, to clarify for some people, you sort of talk about a tensor network. So what is a tensor network? Okay, so if essentially... You, if, if it is something that can be explained in a very layperson oh, kind of way. It's easy. It's easy. So a tensor is a mathematical object, 
where the indices can be assigned different values in a countable set. And you'll have countably many of those connected, and that connection will form a tensor network. So for example, um, a unitary quantum circuit, all right? This has gates in it, and you could actually think of those wires on the ends of the circuits as being open wires corresponding to indices. If you were to assign values on the input of your circuit and on the value of your output, the contraction of that circuit will give, well, in that case, it'll give some kind of amplitude um, to make that observation. So for example, it could be zero. Um, you, could have a, you could have a situation where, okay, that measurement outcome is not possible. Okay, or it could be one half, and you could say, okay, that measurement outcome um, is going to happen with you know the square of that because it's an amplitude. Um, so the the tensor network is just a way to kind of depict um, graphically and then look at multilinear algebra graphically and to do some different types of relationships and transformations with it. And it's one thing that I've worked on quite a bit. I don't work directly on it now, mm -hmm. but I use it as a tool more and more. Um, so about you know eight years ago, six years ago, I was really working on that quite a bit. And actually, I'm about ready to post a review, which is called Tensor Networks in a Nutshell. And this is sort of my experience with Tensor Networks, but importantly, I've given a number of short courses on it. And based on the feedback of those courses, I wanted to put something together for contemporary physics, mm -hmm. which sort of said, okay, look, if you read this and you spend a day on it, you're going to go away knowing about Tensor Networks. And so we worked, we worked, we got an invitation from contemporary physics, and now the thing's almost done. And it kind of reminded me of the same spirit of your introduction to uh, quantum error correction, okay? All right. Where people can pick this up, and they can read this, and they'll go away knowing error correction. And it's kind of a similar situation. There's a lot of different um, review articles, and there's a lot of different kind of tutorials on tensor networks. This is not the only one by any means. However, this is the only one that writes it in a way that's for the broadest audience, where most of them are written assuming that you have a background in condensed matter physics, which most people in quantum information do not. And these ideas are big enough now and important enough where I think they should be, you know, part of the language that kind of binds this uh, topic together. So that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah, well, it's one of the most annoying things with some of these topics and some of these reviews that they really do jump into this from a level that is way too high um, for other people to get involved and to, to get led into this. Um, introductory papers, I think, are, are definitely worthwhile in our vast swath of things. And you know, they're just better off than sitting down and having to write a 700-page book on a topic. Um, <laughs> just pick little bits and pieces here and there and at least give you know the occasional people sort of a lead in with enough references to say, well, if you really get interested, this is where to go from here. Yes, that's what that's what I hope. Uh, Tensor Networks, in a nutshell, I, I think it does that. We've gotten very good feedback. It's not in the archive yet, but uh, I'm kind of excited about that one. Yeah, well, I can tell you from our paper, uh, if you're calling it Tensor Networks in a nutshell, I got a feeling you might. We ran into problems because we originally called that paper the Idiot's Guide to Quantum Error Correction, and IOP came back and said, "Look, we can't call it that. We'll get into trouble with trademarks and blah blah blah. So you're going to have to change the title." So I don't know if there's something else called, well, there's Universe in a Nutshell from Stephen Hawking. So maybe you'll run into trouble with the title. If Stephen Hawking comes after me, I'll consider it an honor. <laughs> maybe not him, but certainly the publisher <laughs> might. So in terms of the applications uh, for this kind of stuff, obviously it's, it's a very rich sort of theoretical tool and it's a very rich sort of theoretical area um, to study these things. 
Um, has it led to, within the, either your own work or sort of broader literature, um, something that you would say is, is a killer app, as, as we sometimes say in, in, in the community, you know, something that's very commercially applicable and something that you could build a technology sector around, or is it still more so in its infancy? Well, this is actually a good question. So myself, I have a tendency to want to learn things all the time. Okay, and so when you go after this kind of grand vision of complexity and physical systems, you have to say, well, what is it for? And kind of where the rubber meets the road is if we can do a collaboration with experimentalists. And I typically try to do, you know, something at least once a year. And that's sort of where the rubber meets the road. And these bigger ideas give us, I would say, a very good excuse. We publish this stuff in nice journals now, but it takes a long time if you're doing something like this to get to that point. And where the rubber meets the road is obviously, you know, the important part is what you can actually do experimentally. But um, as a person who ha who really likes to learn about, you know, different things, um, this is a great project because it, it lets you take, you know, especially different pieces of mathematics and to try to understand what that means. And, you know, then think back, okay, what is a, what is a small scale demonstration of this thing that we're looking at? For example, um, breaking time reversal symmetry in a quantum walk, which we called a chiral quantum walk. Um, and this gives a way to bias a probability di distribution, which, of course, you could do this in a variety of different ways, but we have a system to kind of do this, which is based on the underlining uh, network topology of the graph. And we went and we collaborated at IQC with Jonathan Bao and others. Um, and we realized that one actually in NMR. We've done some other ones on Envy centers, and it's just, you know, it's kind of, a, kind of a balance where some of these ideas are, you know, very theoretical and we don't expect to realize them. And they're just kind of studies about, um, I would say, about, you know, physical systems or about, you know, different effects. And other ones are going to be more grounded. And they're actually, you know, the most exciting ones are actually the more grounded ones. Or you're trying to figure out a toy model, you're trying to solve it, so you can kind of look at something uh, in the large scale. So I was going to ask you whether or not with these kind of protocols that you, you've done and you demonstrate, do you require sort of more customized hardware and systems to do these experiments, or can they be bootstrapped off um, the technology that's being used for quantum computing? So to, to maybe make this more concrete, um, the architecture and structure of the IBM's group's quantum experience. Um, it might be too small for what you guys want to do, but if they just simply scaled their system, their, their, their system that's designed for surface code error correction, um, would that be sufficient for you guys to play these tricks? Um, actually, I've looked at the IBM quantum experience a bit. It's very interesting. There's actually, you know, now that, as you probably know, and I'm sure you do, there's a number of papers where they're using this and they're writing about their you know, the different experiments they do on the archive. So I would say for us, it's always some kind of debate, you know, working with experimentalists. It's like theory versus experiment, and you come to grips with what you can actually kind of make happen. And there's always kind of a feedback loop there. Now, the simplest examples are when we just map everything to the gate model and we pick a system such as NMR, okay? Um, the harder examples are, okay, you take envy centers. So a good friend and a colleague of mine, Vile Bergholm, um, he wrote a control theory package where he's actually taking, um, you know, 
systems of, let's say, four qubits on Envy, and he's able to do new things with it mm-hmm. uh, just because, you know, these pulse sequences are, you know, you can't come up with these by hand. This is an optimization routine. And so some of the stuff is more, you know, quantum simulation where we go to the gate model. Other things is more, okay, what can you do with this Hamiltonian? And, you know, it's just kind of a lot of fun. I think, I think it varies. So what's your next step? I mean, are you, are you, is any experimental systems or the, the guys that you're collaborating with, are they in the process of building something new at the moment uh, based on these tensor networks and these, these other ideas that you've been working with? Is, is something in the works? No, I think we're sort of a whisper in their ear, kind of in the background. I'd be um, really excited if they could get three Qtrits going on uh, NV. That would be, that would, that would, I'd be able to do something with that. That's, that's very exciting, and I think that's the next step. Um, so right now we're kind of, we're more kind of on the, you know, the complexity and the, you know, quantum walk side and we're more kind of on that side. So, so let's shift a little bit and and have a bit of a chat about, um, your new position now at the university of Malta, um, and this initiative that you set up called complexity. So first of all, how did you end up at the university of Malta? That's, you know, I, I search around for jobs and that's certainly one place I never would have even considered. Look, it's a, it's a great island. I mean, if you go somewhere cold, it's going to be terrible. And I figured, you know, I'm still young. I could go to a variety of different places, but this place is pretty relaxed. And they kind of stay out of your way and let you do your research, at least right now. And there's some great colleagues there. We have uh, Andre Churub, um, Vittorio Piano, and some other people that are working on quantum physics. And, uh, you know, it's just been a lot of fun. So I'm getting settled in and... I like it. I think it's a it's a one of the more interesting places to work in Europe. The weather's fantastic, and it's kind of a relaxed environment. And so, what I actually did is I I've actually been doing this uh, you know complexity and complex systems for some time, and you know turning it into kind of a bigger initiative is just sort of compiling everything together, and then having this be kind of a recognized part of the university and also the government at some level now. And so. Um, I think it's pretty exciting, and for me, for my needs, I like to have a small number of people around me that are very sharp. I'm not one of those people that like these large groups where you just sort of, you know, put your name on every paper. I can, we can talk science policy later because, you know, we don't want to end up with, you know, people disagreeing with us, but I, I kind of don't like that. And um, although sometimes it's necessary, depending on your topic, but for... You know, for these types of things, I like to work with a small team where we're all focused on something, and that place was kind of providing, I would say, an ideal environment to do, um, you know, quantum physics by the beach, okay? You can sip on some uh, decent beer and uh, go to town. And actually, you should come visit. It's, uh, I think you'd like it. So. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I would love to come and visit. I've never actually been to Malta before, so I'd certainly be able to kill two birds with one stone with that one. be like going to Okinawa. Same kind of thing, sitting on the beach next to a large research institute. But I mean, is the is the initiative itself is it is it based around a, a, a very core theme, or is it you know basically just a, a quantum theory group? So you'll jump around and, and work well, on whatever c- comes around that seems interesting. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. So the truth is is that some of the stuff I'm doing is branching outside of the field of quantum physics and it's looking more at the idea of complexity in physical systems. Mm-hmm. And these ideas really came to life, I would say, in quantum theory. 
Okay, so for example, if you want to have an information theory of complex systems or an information theory of complex networks, well, people have tried that, but they didn't know quantum information theory. Okay, so how can quantum information theory be modified to apply in these other classical fields? And you'd think, hey, we have quantum information theory, we should already understand information physics in non-quantum things, and, the, and that turns out to be false. And so those types of questions, I think, are part of it. And of course, quantum computing is part of it. And, you know, it's just kind of what, what interests me is, I think, the idea that physics and computation are sort of inherently linked, or at least this is how a lot of people view this now. Um, you know, David Deutsch and others kind of set that idea, Richard Feynman kind of set that idea up for us. And now we're sort of exploring, uh, you know, the consequences and sort of what this means. So I would say that the initiative is quite focused around that. However, um, to explore something like this, it takes a variety of different tools. And you're not sure, you know, sometimes uh, what you're going to find. And so I think that there's been a few different things we've done. And as I said, there's experimental aspects. There's, you know, that goes back to the work of adiabatic computing, where there's more theoretical complexity theory. Um, so I would say that the initiative at its core is about complexity in physical systems. And I think that a large part of quantum computing is also about that. So that fits in there very well. So I imagine that you believe then that, uh, that your group, your initiative, does have a place in and should fit in quite nicely with this recently announced uh, 1 billion euro initiative in quantum technologies. I mean, it hasn't really formed itself much at the moment so we don't know exactly what they're going to focus on how they're going to focus on it and who's going to be the principals uh working with this money but i imagine you know you're sitting there thinking okay this could be a a, a core sort of source of revenue and a core collaborative uh opportunity for you guys it's going to be a lot of fun simon do you know anything uh, are you involved much with the internal discussions obviously me based in japan i only hear scattered things here and there well i think that right now there's you know i think that right now the publicly available information sort of would imply that this is definitely going to happen and it's going to be i think it's going to be really exciting and so i think next year everybody's going to find out exactly what's going to go down and i think that you know people in malta are quite excited about it we're all kind of looking forward to it I tend not to talk about this stuff too much, mm -hmm. um, you know, because I don't really know what, you know, what to say about it, what I'm supposed to say, what I'm not supposed to say. So I kind of just sort of say, okay, <laughs> until, until, <laughs> because then you, you, you go in and, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not a politician. These people are setting this up. Okay. Yeah. And my side of it is going to be, you know, um, making sure that the research the portion of the research that I'm involved in will be as good as possible. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that. So does the, uh, does the local government in Malta provide much, you know, sort of internal money with regards to research or does the primary source of your stuff come from the EU in general? I'm not sure exactly oh, how well, much they, they do. Uh, there is national funding calls and okay. they're doing more, they're, they're doing more and more and they're taking it quite seriously now. Um, they're quite competitive in the area. So Malta has half a million people. So they don't do everything. Okay, no, we're not going to ever have. Yeah, we're not going to ever have an experimental quantum physics group there. And I don't even know if it would fit in very well there. Uh, okay, I'll say that now, and then somebody will say, "Ah, you said this, and now we have one." But um, you know, it'd be great if we did have that. But they do have a lot of really interesting things, and it is supported by the government quite well. Um, 
there's, you know, there's quite a solid astronomy program. They're doing different types of astrophysics. They're doing different biological physics. I mean, the medical stuff. There's tons of very interesting research there, and there's definitely a lot of national, um, you know, there's a lot of national funding, but also, of course, uh, they're deeply involved in the EU projects and mm-hmm. as well as other countries, other projects. So a lot of it is project based and there's, you know, there's, there's a decent amount of support and it's growing and they're taking it very seriously. They really, they really consider the uni- University of Malta to be quite important and it's, it's, you know, it's supported. So, yeah, I was all, cause I remember visiting Hong Kong university a few years ago and, uh, listening to them all being very, um, annoyed in the fact that they don't have access to the funds in mainland China and considering how much money the mainland Chinese government is spending on quantum you know there was a certain amount of why couldn't we just get this cash and obviously Hong Kong's a much larger region than Malta is yes yes Hong Kong's much larger yes so the other thing that, that you've been quite active and I suppose this is this is where I first sort of heard about you and was sort of exposed to what you did is you you do try and and work a lot in community outreach. I mean, probably the largest collection of, of quantum people on social media is is attributed to your Facebook group, the Quantum Scientists of the World Unite, um, where a lot of stuff gets posted and a lot of interactions take place. Um, and you've been quite good at this from the get go, sort of trying to at least within the community itself. Um, arrange forums where people can talk and hopefully set up collaborations and and basically just become more involved with each other on a day-to-day basis. Um, was this something that sort of grew slowly or did you see a, a significant deficit in this and decided, okay, I'm going to try and push hard um, to try and at least provide these avenues for people to link up with each other? Well, you know, I went to Harvard and Facebook kind of happened there. So everybody's like, okay, get Facebook. And then I thought, well, what would I do with this? Well, I'm going to start a quantum group. Okay. And then suddenly this thing's massive. And looking back at it, it's been very important for a lot of people. And it's been, it's brought a lot of people. I mean, you know, research has happened from this. Events have been organized on this. So Mm -hmm. um, I had no idea that social networks like Twitter or Facebook or Google Plus would become so powerful, or LinkedIn for that matter. There's another one on LinkedIn that we have, and it's just as large, actually a little bit larger. So, um, it's kind of a cool thing, and I'm pretty glad that it happened. And I think that it's a it's a very positive environment. We uh, we manage this pretty well, and um, there's a number of other people besides myself that are involved in this. I ended up when it got so large, I said, you know what, I have to get other people to help. Partly because this is representing the community, and it's not representing me. Yeah. Okay. I didn't want it to be my thing. So um, Zoltan Zimboris does a lot of work on it. Um, Mark Weald did a lot of work for a long time. He still does some. Um, and there's a number of other people that are helping, and um, it kind of just works on its own. Um, so people listening to the podcast can come and check that out. I think a lo- some of your podcasts and a lot of different things from you have been posted there, and I, I think it's useful in that regard. Um, so I'm glad it's there. And yeah, I'll put a link. To, I'll put a link in the low bar to it. I mean, I, I don't, I don't routinely post every time we do an episode of Macquanics, but every time we hit sort of a milestone, I'll put something up there and remind people to listen or solicit uh, interviews from people on the group. It's sort of whenever I have a week free, it's sort of anyone want to talk? Yeah, it's a good initiative. I mean, this uh, this you know this entire uh, podcast is something that I think we need more of in quantum. So. I think the feedback that we have been receiving from 
from non-quantum people um, has actually been quite interesting. Uh, a few episodes, people telling me, can can you make sure you get your guests to dumb it down even more? Um, they're still talking a little too much over our heads, but that's a bit hard to do with uh, full-time research people. No matter how simple you ask them to make it, it quickly devolves into more complex uh, ideas and more complex discussions. But I don't think there's much you can do about that. Yes, I think the uh, the complexity is an exponential function of the time you let a researcher talk, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. So, <laughs> I mean, my my next thing that I always try and, and try and get guests' uh, opinions on is how you see and, and what's your feeling been on quantum and quantum technology over the years. So, you and I are roughly similar in age, both in real life age and sort of career age. Um, I did my PhD in two thousand seven. I check your bio, you're roughly the same time when you received yours. Um, back during the 2000s, I mean, as you know, we, we saw a very big peak and a very big uh, interest in quantum technology in the late 90s, early 2000s, after things like Shaw's algorithm and Grover's algorithm was discovered and, and people from the private industry and, and government got interested. Um, then towards sort of the mid to late 2000s, there was this question as to whether or not... Um, quantum technology would sort of go the same way as fusion, where there would only be certain dedicated groups, not many people working on it, not a huge amount of investment. Um, but then more recently, um, say from about 2012, 2013 onwards, we really have seen an explosion uh, in investment, not just from governments, but also from the private sector, whether it's the Googles, the IBMs, the Microsofts, uh, and the huge amount of public funding coming in through the EU investment, UK investment, the absurd amount of money the Chinese are spending at the moment on quantum technology. Um, in your opinion, have we reached this kind of what I call sort of the snowball point, um, that this really is now going to be a runaway effect and a quantum technology sector, whether it's computing, communication, sensing, metrology, everything else, is really now an inevitability. Well, if we make an observation of anything and we try to predict the future, the best we can do is look at the past and mirror it, okay, and which point we would be at a peak, okay? However, my personal thoughts are this. So first of all, my work is kind of a little bit outside of it on one hand, so I have one foot in that stuff, but I'm going, I think the bigger ideas are complex systems now from, um, you know, the more theoretical side. Mm -hmm. Now, the technology side, even if we don't have this technology, we have the knowledge base that informs us about things that are good for computers. And this is good for people, okay? And so I think that the investment, it seems very large for us, but we're not asking to build a particle accelerator. We're not trying to go to Mars, okay? And so for our community, yes, it is, It is. you know, now it's going to be quite funded in, in all the countries, Australia, the United States, of course, Europe, China, they're all kind of saying, oh, well, everybody else is doing it, let's also do it. And I think what comes out of that is going to be surprising. So I will be honest. I've always been very negative, saying, okay, that'll never work, that'll never work. But mm -hmm. things are starting to work now. So it is, it is kind of exciting. And I think the future is sort of wide open. And I don't know if we've, you know, I, I don't know. I think that, um, you know, we'll see what happens. But it, it seems like the, uh, the topic is, uh, is becoming increasingly important and it's helping other areas um, as more people get involved and then these ideas backlash onto other fields, such as complex systems. 
So, I mean, how much of the sort of your outlook on this was was influenced by your your time at D-Wave? Because when were you at D-Wave? It would have been quite early on. Yeah, it was quite early on. I think I was the 16th employee, and I had a fantastic time. I was on the first experimental paper, which was two qubits, which was just a coupler, Mm -hmm. okay, that they ever produced. And, you know, I I knew that... uh, I don't know what I knew, but I knew that I wanted to do a hard problem. So I said, okay, what's a hard problem? And Jordy Rose and other people had this thing. They said, okay, look, we're doing annealing. Um, What's a universal version of it that we can actually build? And so it was just kind of a trial and error kind of project. And I think that having something practical in mind is always good for these types of problems. There's There's enough really interesting theoretical questions out there that has a practical real base that it's good to kind of focus on that um, for many things that we're doing. Of course, you know, we're all scientists, so we'll get very distracted and say, oh, wow, the, you know, this number theory is really interesting. I want to think about that for a while. But uh, I think for quantum computing, I think the exciting part is the fact that you can make some of this stuff. And as time goes on, um, the experiments are getting, you know, very impressive. Um, there was a while there where everybody's saying, okay, we're not going to pass this. And then we keep passing those things that everybody says, okay, we're not going to be able to pass that for another 20 years. And, you know, it's like every year we seem to pass something. So, um, I don't know when we're going to reach quantum supremacy, but, um, we'll see. Uh, it's definitely, it's definitely fascinating. Do you feel that there's a future for specifically the annealing and adiabatic stuff? Um, do you, or do you think that the gate model and, and these digital models of computation will ultimately surpass them um, before annealing, for example, gets any real commercial traction? Well, you know, the quantum annealing enigma or the quantum annealing, you know, rainbow or whatever you want to call it, I mean, you're trying to beat an exponential, which is classical technology, which is still increasing exponentially. Moore's law. Okay, it still it still is holding. We're every once in a while someone says, "Oh, it's breaking." So you're trying to you're trying to inc- you're trying to beat that. Let's say it doesn't hold and it just starts to increase polynomially. Well, the polynomial might be quite fast. Now you're trying to beat an exponential with something that is more than likely a polynomial improvement. So it's going to be very difficult. Um, I think it's worth trying, and it's an interesting model of computation and. You know, it's quite possible that this will turn out to, you know, be able to solve certain problems uh, better than other algorithms just for the fact that it might be tailored to do certain things quite a bit better. Um, I think to really get this advantage, we're going to have to make a uh, quantum simulator. And I wouldn't rule out the gate model necessarily. Um, however, the, you know, The uh, quantum error correction sets a pretty high bar, Mm -hmm. and at the same time, for the universal models, no one really knows how that's going to work with adiabatic. For example, if we map a universal problem onto an adiabatic computer, uh, we have to use a construction which is not very effective or efficient. Mm -hmm. Um, Although it is a polynomial, in terms of complexity science, it's fine, but in terms of real life, it's not fine. And so I think that the frontier of quantum computing, a large part of it might actually have to do with universal adiabatic quantum computing and looking for alternative ways to represent problems uh, into the ground state. And I think that the gate model work um, and the adiabatic work will naturally kind of converge at some point, okay, Um, in some, you know, in some kind of interesting way, because what might actually end up happening is you might be able to incorporate gate model 
um, error correction techniques to protect an adiabatic process. Right. Okay. Right. And I think that would, you know, that that's one future. Um, and I think that that has a chance of happening. I would say. Do you know of any? particular systems aside from the superconductors that have really sort of impressed you um, working down this track on on the adiabatic side? I mean, mo most of the the work that's being done in annealing seems to be being done with superconducting technology. Um, and now I'm not familiar with, with any large efforts in any other system. Do you? Uh, I think superconductors are the king of the adiabatic regime. I mean, that stuff is very, very impressive. Mm. So... Well, I mean, I know the Australians are trying to with silicon, or at least they're talking about it sort of hush-hush in, in some sort of forums. But, uh, hey, yeah. We won't I... tell anyone. We won't let anyone know. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I, I talk with enough of these people, and as far as I'm concerned, they know that I shoot my mouth off all the time. So if they don't want me to say something, they shouldn't tell it to me in the first place. Good to know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> look, I... You know, I don't know about I don't know enough about silicone to know if that's going to work or not. If they're building it, then it obviously somebody that knows more about that than me, which is pretty much anybody that works on it by far. Uh, <laughs> I would I would trust them, and I think Australia has been really pushing this idea of silicone, and you know that's that's interesting. Okay, so yeah, we'll, they've, we'll see they've how they've, they've, they've certainly thrown their hat into that ring and made some tremendous steps. Uh, in the last couple of years, but you know we'll, we'll see how they go. They've they've promised to deliver a ten qubit system in the next five years. So um, if they can get to that stage, it'll actually be quite a remarkable achievement. But uh, it's, a, it's a long uphill battle uh, to get to ten qubits in five years. Yes, that would be you know that'd be a point on the timeline for uh, that stuff. I mean that that would be impressive. Yeah. So I'm now going to put you on the spot a little bit in terms of uh, sort of predictions and where you see your own work going. Um, as I've said to, to other people on the podcast, I've got a nice bottle of scotch of your choice um, for anyone who can make a prediction. And hopefully if we're all still around in five or so years, we can look back on these episodes and see who came closest. And uh, Okay, I got one. A contested claim from Google that they've reached quantum supremacy. Within the next two years. Oh, okay. So that was an easy one. So you, you think with this uh, this latest randomized circuit model and this, this this paper put out by the Google group, this theory paper, that a 49-qubit quantum processor in principle should be able to demonstrate quantum supremacy on randomized quantum circuits? Well, I don't necessarily want to attack that paper. Mm-hmm. Because I don't even think they're planning on building that. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, my statement is that they will release, you know, some type of evidence which is experimental and something to do with quantum supremacy. Um, they've already kind of touched around that, and I, I like Google. I think it's very interesting, but that's my prediction. And you know, it's one of those things where it's like Cassandra, you know, this Greek goddess or this, you know, you she knows all the secrets, but she can't tell anybody because the act of telling someone couples to the secret itself. So mm -hmm. the act of me saying this might actually change the future. So therefore, I might actually have to give you a bottle of scotch. I don't even know if that made sense. No, no, no. I, I, I'm not part of this bet. I've got my own predictions that'll happen over a glass, but I've, I've been making these silly predictions for the last 10 years anyway, and none of them's really come true. So I think I've lost well, enough times that I should keep my mouth shut. 
you got to put a little bit of candy at the end of the podcast and then everybody's like, oh my gosh, he's going after Google. And then they listen to it and, you know, get a good chuckle. So that's all right. Hopefully, I mean, I, I hopefully try and... it'll be received that way. Where every time I try and every time I get an experimentalist on the podcast, I try and get them to, to goad other experimentalists like they do in private. Because I think that's, that's got to be a good motivation to get the next guest for the next episode. If somebody works in iron traps, say that superconductors suck and then that'll motivate a superconducting guy to come on and tell me that linear optics sucks. and Because um, we all know that they do it in private. They just won't do it on a public podcast. But in terms well, of... I try to keep it straight. I try to, you know, I try to say what I'm saying in private, in public, and vice versa. But that's—I don't think for any of us that's always the case. So, do you foresee any um, interesting breakthroughs or hope for some some interesting answers to questions in your own head? Um, more on this sort of complex system stuff. I mean, is there something that you think could be answered one way or the other that would actually be quite important in the next five years? Well, I. I see us as kind of looking at stuff that is quite theoretical, and I think that the future of it is largely open. But what I've noticed, and this is actually interesting, so when I first started looking at this stuff, everybody was like, what are you talking about? Why are we doing this? And now you're seeing other groups doing this. And it's very early now, but I think that there's some big questions there. And I think that you know, one thing that human beings just don't understand very well is complex systems, mm -hmm. and quantum being one of them, but also classical. And I think that, you know, the merging these ideas together, I think, is more powerful than just kind of, you know, talking about it. At, you know, if you actually get some results, which we have some toy models to kind of make those initial steps, then I think, uh, I think now we're just seeing more interest. And still, well, um, I think only way that we're going to solve these types of challenges is if a wide group of people looks at this, much like quantum computing. And, you know, I don't know if one group will have the big breakthrough uh, discovery that kind of cracks this, but I believe that, um, you know, I believe that progress, it's, it's just hard to predict the future in this case because, you know, suddenly you solve a toy model and you say, okay, this is close to some real life stuff and this is great and now we have this great thing. But before you solve it, you just don't know. It's kind of a all or nothing. So so at this point, it's just let's see what happens, but something interesting is probably going to. Yeah, yeah, we've made, we've made some connections between the information theory and complex systems and I think that that work will have a future. And if it ends up cracking some problems, okay, that are being faced by the community, it probably, uh, you know, it could, it seems. If it does end up doing that, then I think that would be great. I would, I would feel, you know, a sense of accomplishment for having played some role in that development. But these, these questions are big, and it takes multiple people to do them. So, Wonderful. So we're coming up on our 45 minutes, which is usually the, the end point for these podcasts. So the last thing, as usual, that I ask people uh, is if, is there anything they want to plug? Is there anything that's happening uh, soon in Malta, in Europe, yourself? Um, basically give you a, a spot to do a little bit of advertising for basically anything and everything. Well, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's just so many exciting things right now. Um, I guess, uh, you know, I got a few review articles coming out, but people will see those. And I think, um, 
you know, I would like to encourage you to share your podcast more on these social channels because I think they're pretty cool. I've listened to a few now. Um, obviously, when you invited me, I was like, okay, I need to figure out what's going on. Uh, so I check, I and you know what? I was like, okay, I'm going to listen to this. I, I couldn't imagine listening for 45 minutes, but I found that, wow, the time goes by very fast. And they are interesting. So I hope that I hope that initiative continues. And I hope to see people in Malta. Um, and people can always write to me if they just want to talk about something they've seen in my papers or ideas they think are interesting. So that's about it for me. So the groups themselves, because I'll link to, to the social media groups, both on, on Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, I can't remember that these are closed groups, right? You invite and then you're accepted. Kind well, of this is a tricky point. So at one point there was a discord workshop posted and I took the liberty of posting a group of gentlemen beating a dead horse, kicking it. Mm-hmm in the comment section. Therefore, we ended up with a closed group on quantum computing started by the gentleman that I happened to offend somehow with this. Okay, it's just, you know, this is Facebook. It's just for fun. So the group is open. However, only researchers can post unless you have a very legitimate question. So what we don't want to do is we don't want to operate behind a closed door. Okay, the general public, if they would like, or a undergraduate student that's interested or somebody else, if they want to watch what we're talking about, they can. But to take part in the questions, because this is a research group, then we ask that you don't, you know, you ask questions that are very targeted directly, mm-hmm. and the posts are for researchers. So, for example, researchers will post, um, you know, popular articles, but it's typically about their own work or about something closely related, where, and which is great, okay? And they'll post questions about research, and we have a lot of graduate students posting questions, but these are all very specific. They're about research and they're not just general questions about physics, for example. Yeah, and no, I, I must admit, I think that's probably the best way that you can do this. Um, have something that's publicly visible but restricted in terms of interaction so that you can keep things on point. Yeah, otherwise you just get kind of random stuff once in a while. Yeah, but I mean, been, it, it devolves. Yeah, it devolve been, into fortunate. discussions about Hillary versus Trump in 10 seconds. So that's probably a good idea to keep it close from that perspective. Yeah, this is just, a, there's plenty of places in the world to do that, but this is not one of them. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, we've hit sort of our, our time limit. Um, so once again, Jacob, very, very uh, happy and, and very appreciative that you found the time and, and made the effort to, to punch through the, the Chinese firewall and uh, allow us to have a bit of a conversation about your work and just quantum in general. It was, you know, it's a lot of fun. I'm, I'm glad that we had this discussion. Thank you. Yeah, me too. So thanks again, everyone. Um, I probably no point in me saying that this will be uploaded to, to iTunes and SoundCloud uh, very shortly because once you're listening to it, it's already been uploaded. Um, I'll put a copy of it in our YouTube channel as well um, for those of you who prefer to watch it uh, on YouTube. Um, however, that might take me a few days to do because uh, I'm also traveling. So finding the time and finding the internet connections to get this done Um, will just require a little bit more time uh, on my side. Uh, But thanks again uh, for listening. Um, We should hopefully have our next guest confirmed within the next couple of days. Uh, Once again, I will post to our social accounts uh, with who it's going to be and when and where. Uh, So once again, uh, please log in and and pay attention to our feeds and uh, download these episodes and share them as much as possible. So thanks again, everyone.